Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello, Darren. How are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And this week, we are charting an dangerous expedition into the heart of madness by two lost souls aiming to complete an impossible mission. But aside from the 250 podcast, we're also covering Sam Mendes' 1917. This is doomed to failure, sir. Oh, I've heard it all before. This movie has dropped off the list. It's on the bottom 100. It's upset the fan base. I'm not going to vote it down. I'm not going to record ahead of time. Just to be clear, we're not talking about the movie that we're covering. <laughs> this week. Uh, but yes, so um, 1917, which is the presumed Oscar frontrunner, and thus completes our cycle really? of the Oscar movies. Yes, this is... Um, it has been an interesting year in terms of a kind of. Oscar. See, why am I? Why am I asking? <laughs> I, I think I've, I've I've said on the record before that I don't care. <laughs> That's fair. Um, well, it's, it's it's an interesting year in terms of Oscar nominees, and yeah. you've you've started now. Yeah, you've you've started. You asked the question. You're going to get an answer, whether you want it or not. <laughs> no, this um, is good because <laughs> listeners um, need to know. <laughs> Make sure you have witnesses. Um, but yes, so the. Situation with the, the Oscars this year, there are nine Best Picture nominees. Um, eight of those Best Picture nominees have made the 250. We've covered eight of the nine nominees, which is pretty impressive. Um, and Pop Quiz, Andrew, do you know the one that we haven't covered? Uh, who was nominated that yes. we haven't covered? Best Picture nominee that was nominated that we haven't covered. Yes, I think I do know, because I believe you told me <laughs> earlier today, uh, I may have forgotten okay cool um so yeah this so is batman <laughs> okay um the, the answer is jojo is it the animated batman <laughs> jojo rabbit oh, sorry. sorry i don't know why sorry, i don't keep up with movies <laughs> uh, but yes the answer is jojo rabbit the other eight nominees have, have yeah. made the list so that includes films like the irishman once time in hollywood ford versus ferrari little women um this obviously um and you know that sort of stuff as well. So we kind of covered all of our bases. Marriage Story as well. Aside from Jojo Rabbit. Aside from Jojo Rabbit, which is kind of interesting. And will that get in? No. <laughs> we're going to the most interesting part of the... <laughs> of the 250, where we discuss the movie that is in the movie we're covering this week. But it has been a nominally interesting year in terms of kind of the Oscars, in terms of predicting the Oscars. Because at the start of the race, it seemed like there was an obvious frontrunner. And that obvious frontrunner was The Irishman. Then it became very, very clear that the Oscars were going to pull a Roma again and weren't going to nominate, or Hollywood wasn't going to award another Netflix film. Um, and so basically it dropped out of the race and left a kind of a gap. And there was lots of kind of speculation about what might actually win in its place. The possibility of Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood maybe winning came up. Parasite has actually played surprisingly well with, say, the Screen Actors Guild. Has, and in, has that been nominated? Yep, Parasite's nominated for Best Picture as well. Okay, um, I'm just writing down all of the ones so far. Yeah, yeah. So, The Irishman, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, Little Women, Joker. Yep, Marriage Story. Joker and Marriage Story. <laughs> this is great for the listeners. It really is. So how, many do you, how many do you have written down now? <laughs> you can follow along at home. Yeah. The Irishman, 1917, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, uh, Little Women, yep. Joker, yep. Uh, Marriage Story, yep. Jojo Rabbit, 
Yep, yeah, is the one that we're not covering, and that means the last one is Ford versus Ferrari. <laughs> it's crazy. It, it, I am inclined to say this has not been a good year for movies. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. I'm actually relatively satisfied with the Best Picture nominees. This is Darren's hot take, uh, is that everything is perfectly fine. <laughs> Love. Um, you loved Ford versus Ferrari's like uh, celebration of mediocrity. A perfect functional <laughs> functional ship. But yeah, no, okay. That here's the thing: the Oscars this year. As, Darren as, Mooney. Yeah. What really grinds my gears. Darren has taken over from Alec Baldwin and is now presenting. Here's the thing. Um. But yeah. So the situ- the situation. Is that his show? Right? That's his podcast. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the thing with the Oscars is that, you know, every year there's always people who are angry about the Oscars, very invest in the Oscars. There's no way that the Oscar list is ever going to please anybody. And this year there are very real problems, particularly in, say, the director's race, which is, is all male, despite a kind of a huge number of fantastic women directors who could have been in there. Greta Gerwig for Little Women, for example. That's a strange even, one, all right. Yeah. yeah. But even, say, um, Lorraine Scafaria for, for Hustlers and stuff like that, or even Olivia Wilde for Booksmart, well, which I was locked out completely. Hustlers got a lot of um, snubs. Yes, yes, it, it did. Is, and this, is, is this the snubs and flubs a section um, of the pub? section? Yeah. yeah, well, just before we get into talking about why I like the Best Picture list, acknowledging that, you know, the nominees this year could have been stronger. But I think that if, for example, in the Best Actress race, you dumped Charlize Theron and replaced her with Lupita Nyong'o from uh, Us, for example. and Charlize if be- Theron for... Bombshell. Bombshell. Uh, which is the Fox News sexual harassment movie, uh, which actually did quite well. Lupita in Nyong'o for us. From Us, yes. I would okay. replace her in that. I've heard and then, she's very good and, and she's, she's uh, phenomenal. apparently playing two roles. She is indeed. She's it's it's one of the it's probably my favorite performance of the past year. And then in the supporting actress race, if you dropped Kathy Bates from Richard Jewell and replaced her with Jennifer Lopez from Hustlers, I think you'd have a much stronger kind of across the board list of nominees. And yeah, it's not. It, I mean, it sounds it sounds like it's not um, it's not an, an an argument kind of for diversity you're making. That like by all accounts. Jennifer Lopez was was like it's a surprise that she's it's it's shocking to to people who've seen it. Well, I, I mean, still haven't seen it. Okay, <laughs> despite I the don't fact have a DVD player. <laughs> I did. I got Andrew a DVD of Hustlers, um, but he has not yet watched it. I'm trying this, to spin it so I can uh, read the data off yeah. the disc. Um, I did, Hustlers, by the way, is the stripper movie. To be yes. entirely clear, um, as Andrew enthusiastically noted during our anniversary podcast. But I mean, the thing with the Best Picture nominees is that I actually think that if you look at the list of those nine films, you have a fairly representative glimpse of what cinema is in 2019 and 2020. You have the two Netflix films, which are The Irishman and Marriage Story, which represent the future of streaming. You have sort of these old-fashioned kind of throwbacks in the style of stuff like, say, Little Women, which is a period drama. But say Marriage Story as well, which kind of harks back to the cinema of the 70s. You have even Joker, if you want to go that way. You have The Irishman from Scorsese. You have like these, these kind of like blockbuster crowd-pleasing sort of aimed at older demographics movies like say ford versus ferrari the irishman once a time in hollywood you have this idea of kind of films outside of hollywood breaking in in terms of no, no, films don't like you find it kind of boring parasite which what like, like aside from parasite which isn't going to win no well at I mean, all yeah. like um the the um there are good movies in there but i know um, i think it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't strike me as kind of um like the year when it was La La Land and um, Moonlight and Moonlight, 
Um, and there were other great movies uh, th- that year. That, was that to, was that the year that we started doing this? Yes, it was. Yeah. Oh, um, La La Land was one of our first This Just Ins, actually. Yeah. Along with Arrival. And that said, though, like, I think what I like about this slate of nominees is that there is something for everybody, but not Oh, everybody. it's definitely, like, a crowd pleaser. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it absolutely is. And there's, like, regardless of a what... A unit shifter. <laughs> <laughs> no, a four-quadrant hit, baby. Uh, but, like, if, yeah. if, you, if you don't like Joker, you've got, you know, Little Women in there. If you don't like The Irishman, you've got Marriage Story. If you don't like Ford versus Ferrari, you've got Parasite. If you don't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you've got Jojo Rabbit. You've got like a little something for everybody. A little like I think that you could pick a good film for anybody out of those nine films that would satisfy them in some way. Perhaps I think I don't know. I I, I, I kind of prefer to have like um, well, I don't know. Anyway, it it, it it just it doesn't seem to me such a such a strong. I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. I've heard it's very good. Uh, Jojo um, Rabbit would actually be my least favorite of the nominees. Um, I've also heard that. It tends to divide opinion. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's talk about 1917, which is the film we're talking about today. The Oscars are happening tomorrow. And as we're recording, it is the favorite to win. Um, it basically cleared the field uh, in terms of the Directors Guild of America and Producers Guild of America awards in the past couple of weeks, which have helped it's kind of settle into that role. It's interesting because it is the rare film that is a frontrunner in Best Picture that has no acting nominations. It also doesn't have a Best Editing nomination, which has historically been an indicator in that field. But obviously, yeah, they say there are there's so such few editing. Yeah, like the, the best editing movie is well, I, the I think most the, editing. I think yeah, I think Donald, Donald Clark was saying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, Donald Clark. <laughs> <laughs> He's just Donald because I've met him. <laughs> yeah, we were talking. To, we're, I think for in in the last pod, podcast it might have been for about ten minutes, which is my fault. <laughs> but yeah, and and again though, nineteen seventy is kind of settled in, and it's interesting to look at nineteen seventeen. And again, this is the situation where you have a lot of reaction against the kind of best picture nominees, and you have a lot of reaction against the front runner. And a lot of it is down to I think what you're saying there, in that if you were to look at that list of nominees, and you were to pick the least controversial winner from that list or the least divisive one or kind of you know you'd probably go with little women or you might even go with ford versus ferrari yeah, if you want to ford versus ferrari is so yeah. kind of the, but that's the, the the problem with with a divisive list are you gonna are you gonna end up going for like the most kind of blah or uh, inoffensive yeah. um or kind of middle of the road I I don't know. I I um... But that that's the argument. That's the the argument for why 1917 has managed to pull ahead of the other nominees is that it doesn't have say the baggage of marriage story the Irishman as a Netflix film. It doesn't have the baggage of marriage story of being kind of like a Noah Baumbach working through his therapy. It doesn't have the baggage of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of being Quentin Tarantino-esque. It doesn't you know it doesn't have that any of that weight behind it. It doesn't deal with Nazis unlike Jojo Rabbit. It doesn't Rab- have women. <laughs> like little women. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and therefore, People like hate by, women. Yeah, by pro- well, yeah. If you if you listen to well, the- I, I am DB voters. <laughs> um, like, like the greatest movie in IMDb. <laughs> was like one woman giving a line, which is like, make sure to double bag that. They didn't double bag it last time, and the groceries fell through. Was that the line? That was, the, that was the line. Yes. Yeah, and that's the, the greatest movie. movie of all time by yeah. process of. Um, but yeah, but that that's the thing with 1917 is that it's a it's a crowd pleaser and it's kind of inoffensive and it's very hard to kind of 
object to it too strongly. In fact, if you are making a positive argument for 1917 and why 1917 is the front runner, you're generally not arguing about the content of the film itself so much as the technical expertise that right. went into making it. Um, famously, without getting too spoilery, it is designed no, to look. I, I think all of the marketing kind of, is built uh, it. Yeah. It is a one-take war film, um, which is quite impressive. For two hours, it looks like there is a single cut over the course of the movie, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Obviously, it isn't literally that. Um, you know, the technical requirements of doing a film like that with actors, locations, and sets mean that there's no way that you could keep a camera running for two hours while staging a recreation of the First World War, but it is a beautiful technical accomplishment. More than that, it is sold as that. We went to the cinema to see Ford versus Ferrari. We got a trailer for 1917 that wasn't about the story, the character, the premise, the setting of it. It was Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins illustrating how the camera was working and the techniques they had Hi, to I'm use. Sam Mendes. Pretty much. Um, yeah. We had to invent a new way of shooting and like shots of the camera being loaded onto trucks and the extras lining up. And it's very much a movie that's being sold as inverted commas and experience. And when you look at so much of the Oscars over the past couple of years have been anxieties around Netflix. So we, like last year, everybody was certain that Roma would win because Roma was a perfect Oscar movie in every sense of the world. It was also a beautiful movie of itself. Yeah. And it kind of garnered a lot of like the awards going up to the Oscars. So people kind of assume like it was the best movie of, of the last um, uh, Oscar season. It was I would I, I really, really liked it. I think it's probably the best of the Oscar friendly movies. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. And I mean, and it was locked out and the, the award went to Green Book, which was a surprise to a lot of people, myself included. Um, yeah, that that was odd. Like I was I was kind of defending um, uh, Green Book because I, 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 it, it's um, anyway, sorry, you can listen to me defend Green Book. Yeah. Uh, but we, but were, we were defending but, it before but, the award was given out. I still didn't was think like, it was yeah. that great. Yeah. Like, we I, were, I, 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 think, I think I was just kind of forced to defend it because there was so much kind of flack. Yeah. And, I, and by the way, I'm not forced and offended. I don't have to. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> um, but again, and then that's the situation that we're in with sort of 1917, where 1917 is a film that, and again, I, I hate to kind of say this because this is a cliche and I, you know, I'm not wholeheartedly shaking my fist in the air, worried about, I know, worried about the future <laughs> of cinema, but it is a film that perhaps rewards the traditional cinematic experience seeing it on as big a screen as possible with yeah. as loud a sound system as possible with as big an audience <laughs> which, as possible which is why <laughs> which is but i mean that that's exactly why i suspect that the awards bodies have kind of pulled towards it is because it's, I, it's the antithesis I, of i made sure to watch experience. it in a place with as big a screen <laughs> as <laughs> i could find with with, with 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 an excellent sound system yeah. genuinely no thank you very much andrew we, we did watch it downstairs before this but I, i've seen the cinema twice actually um and it is quite an experience to i wasn't see allowed to watch it i had to ask darren what's happening um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i mean I, I and again i think that like the technical prowess goes into this you could watch it on a phone and it would still be impressive but it is a movie that kind of like screams look at how movie like this is look at how cinema like this is in a martin scorsese sort of sense look at the technical craft on display and i can see why award voters would be kind of drawn to that in uh, at a point in time where they are anxious about the future of the media the future of the, the traditional cinema going experience and we talked in the podcast before cinema's always changing we're very happy with netflix it gives us movies like the irish and marriage story so we're not scared at all but i can see why Hollywood or the traditional Hollywood establishment is. 
Um, that said, say it like they've been scared for years. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. they always have to be scared of something. Like the the disruption is just, and it's not something that is unique to cinema either. Um, but the the, I think there there's there there's enough love for the form, yeah. where um it 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 feels like something that will always have a place. Yeah, in the same way. We still have books. Yeah, despite the advent of, of cinema, film, and you know television and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I I would agree with that. That said, I I actually do you think they'll get rid of radio eventually? Just filter it. I, out. Yeah, I I feel like that might be a thing that um, or at least like that it won't really be the same. I I know the way television is kind of changing. It seems with it seems time shifted viewing and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems odd uh, checking what um, what's on at the moment because unless it's five to nine. <laughs> Um, you're not going to you're not going to catch the the beginning of something. Yeah, like if it's five past nine, you've already missed it, and that's sort of right. Stuff. The end of appointment viewing and stuff like that. But I do think like 1917, and and we'll talk about the three questions in a moment, and then talk into a kind of a deeper discussion of it. One of the things I actually quite like about 1917 is that it is a technical marvel. It is a fantastically produced film. And there's a tendency in discussions of the film, and again, this is the thing where you become, as soon as you become the front runner in the Oscars, you all of a sudden have a target painted on your back, and everyone's all like, well, the problem with this movie is X. And you get a lot of a lot of takes around whether or not 1917 has That's any That's what substance. I like to do. I know, just paint a target like on to it. go after. Um, films that are, are popular and successful. But, like, I quite like the, the 1917 as a technical accomplishment. I like sitting... I've watched it four times. You like sitting. I do like sitting. I like watching. I like sitting and watching together. It's like two great things, two great tastes that taste great together. But I do, I like 1917 as, I do like to watch, as a, as a cinematic experience, as kind of like just a celebration of like what's possible in cinema. And I think that I can respect it. And I can, I would be relatively happy with a Best Picture win for 1917. It wouldn't be my favorite of the listed nominees. It wouldn't be my least favorite. Yeah, but it wouldn't make it. It, it really like you'd look at that and you'd think it's not really being a champagne year for movies. If am I is is that bad? I don't know. The, what the, I mean, um, I, 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 I suppose I'm maybe tipping my hat. Oh, in your opinion, <laughs> as we jump, let's jump into the three questions then. Yeah. So. Do you think that 1917 belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, no, no, I, I, I wouldn't put it um, on that list. I'd certainly agree with that. There are already quite a few war movies on there. Um, even Paths to Glory, which is the obvious inspiration for 1917. Dunkirk was on and dropped out. Um, I loved Dunkirk. I adored Dunkirk. I, um, I, I think a lot about dunkirk and i think it was on the telly during christmas and um i was watching it it's a movie that uh, <laughs> makes me proud to be english <laughs> i'm not english i'm irish As but that's the how... elgar music yeah, on the score of... but that's how powerful it was andrew standing in front of a burning laptop wearing his RAF <laughs> uniform <laughs> but uh, no i i, I kind of, that's the thing is that like i think there are better war movies on there i think platoons on there i think come and see is on there for example i think that like you don't need another war movie on there and if you did 1917 probably wouldn't be that movie and and more to the point like again this is i i have a sneaking suspicion this is going to be like ford versus ferrari where it's like we both think it's a, a 
a solid movie, but we're probably going to end up talking. No, like, like it's not just a solid movie. It's, no, it's, a- it's a it's a tremendous technical accomplishment. But the thing is that it does it doesn't it doesn't move me. I I, I don't want this. I nineteen seventeen isn't kind of a piece of art that I um you know want to want to have or hold. Yeah, or kind yeah. of elevate or celebrate yeah. or think as a definitive statement on the year that's been sort of thing. Yeah, it's it it, it hasn't really it it hasn't made a, a a a big kind of impact on me. Yeah. And now of course there's been lots of people who've seen the movie and it probably has, but um I, I no, I I kind of want movies to do a bit more than than just be um spectacular, you yeah. know? And I can see that. And I mean, I, I would be like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with movies being spectacular. I don't think. No, it, no. But it, but but I, I I think I think it seems like this movie is putting a lot, is placing a lot of kind of importance or the, the, the um, and that it's kind of hitched its hat to um, the craft as opposed to. Yeah. Substance. As opposed to the, the kind of, or the art yeah. of, of. Of the movie, yeah. It's just my opinion. Yeah. And then I suspect then we know that it would not make your own personal 250? Not my own, no, no. And yours? I'm going to be... This is where Darren is like, you know, I'm going to... I promise I will Do give it. 1917 a fair hearing over the rest of the podcast, but I just need to throw this out here now and yeah. get it out of my system. I will be just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit pissed off if the Christopher Nolan cosplay movie wins the best picture and best director oscar two years after the far 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 superior christopher nolan war movie because i mean 1917 i like mendes a lot i think mendes is a really good director i think he's then the nolan movie in dunkirk um i like yeah, i see a sorry, lot of dunkirk. but you're 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 um Oh, sorry. Yeah, You're describing this as the uh, Dunkirk cosplay, so to cosplay. Speak. Yeah, the Dunkirk sort of. That is a bit harsh. I know. I, I know you've you've kind of written a, a book a about, book. but it, like they're very different movies. Well, okay. Well, uh, and again, I promise I'm not. I'm. I'm. I like 1917 a lot. This isn't going to be a Darren complains about 1917 podcast. I but give me about can... five minutes. Give me five minutes now, where I can just like just air my grievances on this particular subject, which is. Mendez, I like Mendez a lot. Mendez uh, is a director with a very good eye. I think when we talked about American Beauty, which is a film that has not aged well, I think generally speaking, we were like, well, Mendez has a good eye for these sorts of things and he knows what he's doing. And one of the things that I like about Mendez is that he's not an auteur in the conventional sense in like you go to a Sam Mendez movie and you know what you're going to get because it's going to be Mendezian. He's Mendez in a sense that he typically works with a bunch of collaborators he trusts greatly. Roger Deakins uh, does cinematography on a lot of his films, including this one. Um, <laughs> what a bold choice. No, no, no. Okay. But you know, no, the, the music it, from Thomas Newman. But it's nice he, of him to say to Roger Deakins, hey, I want you uh, to to um, do cinematography in my next movie. Because I know nobody else is going to ask you And to. because I want to win the best picture. <laughs> that is also a fact. Yeah, yeah. But, and I want you to win the, the award like for the cinematog- cinematographer. And, like, I, I'll, I'll, I'll make a movie so that you get to kind of... Um, show off. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But no, but that, that's, that's the thing about Mendes. And I like that about Mendes, is that Mendes genuinely feels like a great collaborator. But, like, and, 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 like, and you see and it even a lot, a lot of that... Sorry, I joke a bit, but a lot of that is to his credit. It's yeah. not just that you that you 
you approach Roger Deakins to give him a whole lot of money. You probably have to be the kind of person who can uh, maintain that relationship and get the most out of yeah. it. And, and obviously Deakins Which enjoys working with him as something well, that, yeah. that he's able to do. Yeah, And, yeah. and Deakins obviously enjoys work because you don't undertake a project like this as a cinematographer unless you entirely trust the director you're working with. And, and more than that, like Mendes has... He love uses him as well, doesn't yeah. he? Um, uh, the, he started out working with the Coens as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he's, he's got, like, again... Deacon's, he's done a lot with Cohen's, yeah. Yeah, too. well, he, he would have started out. That's how he sort of rose to prominence. And again, Mendez is a director with really, really, really good taste as well. Um, in that, like I mentioned, I don't think there's anything particularly Mendozian uh, in terms of like categorizing, yeah, can, characterizing films. But I think Mendesian, Mendesian, if you will, he tends to draw from kind of influences and Mendesian. and he's got great taste, which is very important with this sort of thing. So you can see it with Skyfall, where Skyfall draws a lot from the Nolan Bond movies and Inception, right down to using the Hong Kong islands that the were an Nolan inspiration. Bond movie. Sorry, the, the Nolan Batman movies. Batman movies. Batman okay. movies. Sorry. So like it, the Skyfall draws from like using the Hong Kong location that was an inspiration in Inception, for example, to the idea of the mansion with the manservant out in the hills and the kind of the idea where you capture your villain and put him in a glass cage in the middle of the film so you have a confrontation but then it turns out it was secretly as planned to get captured all along which is basically the dark knight playbook that was recycled through everything from you know skyfall through to uh, star trek into darkness and i think that like 1917 you're right it is not an exact copy of dunkirk and that's maybe a tiny bit unfair of me to say but a lot of it um carries over so there's things like the tagline being time is the enemy and again, I think what the film does with time is great. We'll talk about that in the spoiler zone. But its emphasis on the warping of time as well feels quite Nolanian, for example. The use Nolanian. Of... <laughs> you're, you're, you need to work on your adjective work. <laughs> yeah. um, but even, even say things like, say, that the way the time distorts in the film itself, the way that it bends and contorts, it doesn't zip that around. That is a stretch. Oh, oh, like time itself. But um, also even... No, no, no. <laughs> it's a further stretch. Um, but even no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Before you, before well, you just uh, uh, push on, does it? Um, time stretches in the movie. Yes, this is a big thing. The entire movie is shot in real time, but takes place over a journey that takes at least eight hours, if not more. And a lot, the lot, I would argue that a key point thematically, yeah, one of one of the characters, um, it's a, it's a uh, one take film, um, uh, sleeps. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, no, no, at but, some point but that's even, not if, stretching time no no but even allowing like even not, allow- not not showing the entire but, time when while he's asleep no 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 but even even allowing for that like it's an eight hour journey right that's not counting sleeping so he the, the reason he falls asleep and then he runs behind as a result the journey takes longer than eight hours because he sleeps but the entire journey takes two hours of screen time but we're told at the start that it's at least eight hours on foot um, and again, the time bends. I think it's one of the best things about the film. I think it's very clever. I think it's done remarkably well from a technical point of view. And I, I think know. it's a core thematic. I, I think you can look at the movie and, and, and not see that. Okay. But anyway, as I was going to say, an emphasis on uh, a. Sorry. Like, like uh, what? It... Can I move to item number two very quickly? Or are we going to stay on this all night? Um, no, we, we can if you want. But I was more going to just say it's, it's more kind of a bullet point sort of thing. It feels very much like along the lines of using. It's a war movie that's heavily influenced by the British experience of war, for example, in terms of Dunkirk being obviously a Second World War battle, but one that was, you know, unknown to Americans. This is a movie that is nominally set on the same day that America joins the First World War, but is entirely from a British perspective and is a war that Americans don't know as much about. Um, I, 
anyway, okay, fine. This is very strange. Because, like, it, it might explain maybe why Sam Mendes was allowed to make this movie, but it doesn't explain why Sam Mendes wanted to make this oh, movie. Oh, no, no. He didn't do it to, in order to kind of um, follow uh, Christopher Nolan. I know. He was I'm, telling his very much his own a, story. A very personal story, and we'll talk about that when we get to the spoilers one as well. No, it just, anyway, and... And my issue with it is that, like, you have Dunkirk, which did... It felt like night and day. Okay. I, I, this is the thing. This is the, the, this is also my issue with it, is that while it has all that stuff and you can see the kind, or at least I can see. Sorry, the, all that stuff, the, the, I'm, 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 I'm letting you go on. I'm just kind of uh, dis, di, disagreeing with you. Yeah. I'm, go, I'm, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. But... but um, so, so, no, 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 okay. So, while it has, so like, a warp's like time, the, the, right? War, the manipulation of time, a very okay. British experience of, of war that is, is largely unknown to American audiences, for example, you know, um, in that American audiences are less experienced with the First World War than the He's Second English. World War. Less, yes, less experienced with them. And again, yeah. Um, He's but, just copying Nolan by being English. <laughs> like, <laughs> Nolan was English first. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Anyway. But like, and again, that sort of like emphasis on on time is a huge part of it. Well, that was the first point. Okay, but anyway, it takes that right, which is, and again, it's kind of raw, gritty, personal, sort of like. Emphasis. Even an English war movie that 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 messes with time. Yes. Okay. And 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 if 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 we don't think it messes with time, then it's kind of doing an English war movie. <laughs> Okay. But he's anyway, English. Let me get... <laughs> and his grandfather was in the war. Let me... Anyway. Sorry, let... yeah, yeah. Go, go Okay, ahead. all right. Anyway. Even let... Let's throw all that stuff out then after after all that, right? And let's just say it is the second big war movie that's been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar uh, with a Best Director nomination in the past couple of years, right? And Dunkirk right. is an obvious point of comparison there, right? Uh, Hacksaw like, Ridge. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge didn't get to get a Best Director nomination for Gibson? Um, I, I, I don't think they could because of all the <laughs> terrible things he did. But uh, <laughs> I love that you make it sound like a Wizard of Oz, sort of like <laughs> the Demon of Oz, because of the terrible things he did. <laughs> um, but anyway, my, my point is, so like you have these two movies that have been nominated for Best Director, Best Picture, are considered to be possibly in contention. And like what I liked about Dunkirk was that it was it stripped out a lot of the cliches of the war movie. It stripped out a lot of the elements of, of things where, you know, like the I'm writing home to my sweetheart. I got a picture of my baby here. Yeah. You know, I really want a medal. Um, one of us is going to be cynical and the other one's going to be optimistic and hopeful. It stripped out all of those cliches and offered something that was a bit more raw a bit more kind of visceral a bit more immersive and kind of like a bit more unconventional i would argue in terms of a war movie and what 1917 does is it basically stuffs a syringe full of that stuff and injects it back into the veins a piping bag (laughs) yes full of of all these war movie cliches yeah moss is rendered animal fat Pretty much, and and again, that that's what. My... Very sorry to people who <laughs> like this movie. No, I. We're, okay, I, again, I said I like this movie a lot, and we'll talk a bit more in a moment why I like it. But like, this is my. No, I I I completely agree with you on on that. I don't I don't I don't think um I don't think this movie compares well to Dunkirk because I think Dunkirk was a far better movie, and as you say, and kind of an unconventional movie, a bit of a a um. Like it, it would be difficult to say that this is a great movie, 
because of the 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 reasons you've given the 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 kind of derivativeness of it, but it has it has its 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 uh its great kind of technical accomplishments. Yeah. But I mean, you could look at Dunkirk and say the same thing. Well, that was one of the criticisms of Dunkirk was that it lacked heart, which I I never buy. But again, I'm a robot that you know just generates movie opinions. I I I I I would disagree. Um, on that with uh, with Don Kirk, I um I think that's that's yeah we we've spoken a lot about how um Nolan movies tend to invite that criticism yeah but. and how I strangely find myself more emotionally invested in them than like Pixar movies which is probably slightly worrying yeah but um anyway that's that's my that's Darren's little rant on 1917 out I really like this movie we'll talk about it more in a moment. Andrew, would you recommend 1917? If people haven't seen it yet, is it worth seeking out? Um, no, I, I, not really. Kind of, I, I, I would watch the, the sort of um, behind the scenes kind of marketing featurette. The um, how we did this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, the, the thing that they, it, like the trailer. I presume there's probably something on YouTube. Um, well, they're, they're, uh, where or even uh, I think Sky Movies do that sometimes. Where, where they do it behind the scenes, sort of yeah, like promoting yeah. it almost before the release or once in cinemas. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So watch that, like, because you'll be like, "Wow, <laughs> how did they do this?" That's and incredible. Again, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the how they did this in in the spoiler zone. I feel bad though, like, like no, but no, it really, it, it, it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it, and 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 not that anybody's kind of depending on me for my recommendations either. So, like, you know, the, but personally, no. Right. Yourself? I would recommend it. I, I liked it a lot. And again, this is this is a thing where it feels like I've been rather mean to it for about eight minutes. But I'm like, hey, no, no, no. I I, I really liked it. The I, funny thing was that I was disagreeing with with yeah. with your kind of criticism, uh, of cri- criticism of it. Is this that have you written something already <laughs> and now you're anchored? <laughs> so there's a record of it. There's a printed record of it. No, um, no, I haven't actually written that much about 1917. Uh, and the stuff I've written has generally praised it, uh, which we'll probably get to in the spoiler zone because I'm, I do actually. I again, as I mentioned earlier, I do. It is a craft accomplishment, and I do think that. It wouldn't be one of my favorite films of last year or this year, but it is something that I am genuinely awed by. Um, I'm amazed that this was accomplished. It looks stunning. And I've seen it twice on a big screen. I like Andrew will. We've talked in this podcast before where I am a non-confrontational person. But I have a favorite seat that I like to sit in for a movie in <laughs> Dublin. And when I went to see 1917 last night, there was a kindly middle-aged gentleman who had dropped his kids to a Jonas uh, Brothers concert and just wanted to enjoy a movie and had plunked himself down in my seat. And I and you fixed your bayonet. <laughs> it was him or me. Um, no, I, I politely asked him. He was very polite. And it was very sweet because after the movie was over, we passed each other in the hall on the way out. And he was like, that was a great movie, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Um, but yeah, I, I really like 1917. I really like, again, as somebody who is who can see the appeal of like that level of technical craft and likes being all about it. And to be frank, it was the Mooney Family Christmas movie, arguably for the reasons we've already outlined, which is that it is... You all went to the cinema? 
Oh, we may have won. I may have considered it for <laughs> okay. awards consideration, uh, just how while my family were in the room. Yeah, um, yeah, they were all facing in <laughs> the way I did. Um, but also, like again, I can't see down. <laughs> What's happening? You're gonna have to jump. <laughs> You're gonna have to trust me on this one and just jump on 1917. Yeah, um, but you, yeah, you gave me kind of like a sheet of opinions. It's like it makes it work better as a podcast if you disisagree with me here <laughs> on this point. And you're like, this isn't consistent at all. I don't care. Shouldn't I let you finish your point? <laughs> no. It seems Come more in organic. And attack me as I'm building it. Yeah. Um, but it uh, creates tension <laughs> and mounting pressure. The Thomas Newman score kind of builds. Um, but yeah, 1917 was the Mooney Family Christmas That's movie. Another for- thing, the score. Well, the score is very... If you were to compare this to Dunkirk. Yes. Like the... the score is very traditional war movie, which is odd yeah. for a movie that emphasizes its one take so much. It emphasizes its formal distinction from other war movies to a great extent. And then narratively, but in terms of the soundtrack as well, it's very much like you would almost imagine a kind of an Oscar award season war movie to sound like. Had a one one take soundtrack where you can hear a lot of people turning pages. Uh, and just George McKay looking around confused when that comes on. But yeah, no. So the reason why it was the Mooney Family Christmas movie was for the reasons we discussed, which is that it is a crowd pleaser. It's a broad film. It's the film on the list that is least likely to generate, you know, exception from anybody. So yeah, I, I would recommend it. I think it's it's... I think it's a fantastic technical accomplishment, but it wouldn't be near my top of the the nominees. And if you haven't seen Parasite yet, go see that. If you haven't seen Little Women yet, go see that. If you haven't watched The Irishman or Marriage Story, go see those. Hell, if you haven't seen Ford versus Ferrari, maybe flip a coin. Um, which is, you know, doesn't sound like the highest possible recommendation, but I like both of those movies. So anyway, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So, Andrew, what is 1917 about for you? Um, I guess uh, um, we aren't discussing the kind of technical accomplishment of it. So, to talk about what the movie is supposed to be kind of narratively, ab- narratively about. So, it's um, it seems to be about uh, about brotherhood. Is it's about death and decay it's it seems to kind of feature a lot of 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 that i don't know if it's very um committed to what it's about yeah to themes as well i mean it 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 it, it, i don't feel like i can have i mean one one like i mean we talked about marriage story we talked about like little women and those are movies that i think have more arguably substance to the more aboutism to them i think they're clear I mean, in what they're saying there are things there are things that you can think about when watching this movie like i remember looking at a town that is being destroyed and thinking about kind of our towns yeah. being being destroyed and it did it, it, it's always in war movies when people approach these towns it's like they're not towns anymore you know yeah, and they're almost kind but of I, haunted ruins. Yeah, yeah. And but that's I, I, I imagine that's a place. Yeah, where 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 maybe three or four years ago there were 
people kind of living in those towns are full of life paved streets and shops and yeah the tradesmen and stuff and it, it's um it's really it's shocking um to think about that and it's something i think war movies it's difficult i um I forget who it was who said it. I I, I believe you might know, but Truffaut. That, the, yes, yeah, yeah. That is that war, is the difficulty of making an anti-war movie. Exactly, but I, but I think it's good. Cinema has a role in reminding people how terrible um, war is, because like can just to think of 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 one's town, like the one the place you first took birth or even or even the place you live if you have that kind of affection for um for to think of the to to think of these um communities and places just entirely destroyed and reduced to something close to medieval ruins because they do look like they're sort of like left over from the middle ages almost yeah and it's odd that kind of i found that stuff kind of affecting and some of the human casualties um i I don't know. It, it, it didn't 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 really um, connect with connect. No, like yeah. like I f- I found like uh, as if some of the time it was kind of being presented as kind of horror gore, like like the the when characters kind of are kind rats of like coming out of it and characters um, who are now part literally part of the landscape, bodies that have been almost yeah. entombed or swallowed by the earth. The moment where Schofield puts his hand inside a, a corpse and kind of comes out. And again, this is the thing where like, you know, the movie and, and Nate Jones at Vulture has argued that one of the reasons why 1970s works so well with Oscar voters is because it has inverted commas as happy an ending as is possible for a World War One film. But at the same time, watching it, Schofield is either going to die from like a sepsis infected wound on his hand with the barbed wire that he put inside a corpse. Or as as the Colonel McKenzie points out, he's just going to be sent over some point down the line anyway. And the movie makes a point that, you know, every his entire journey, he begins sitting well, on Not everyone um who fought in world war one died. died yeah i know i know but the i think the film is slightly more and i, d- and I than... don't and i don't think uh schofield is definitely going to die either yeah I, I mean again i can see the kind of upbeat kind of hopefulness that jones talks about but i can also little bit of cynicism there that i think it befits a world war one movie but the idea that the movie begins with schofield and blake under a tree and then it's it looks like one big take and he journeys halfway across France. He makes this massive journey to the southeast, and it ends with Schofield by himself, sitting under a tree in a se- in a sequence that's very reminiscent of where he started, as if to suggest that he's done. He's t- undertaken this incredible journey. He's lost Blake along the way. He has arguably saved these sixteen hundred men, or however many survived, barring the first wave that went out. But in the end, they're probably just going to get sent out again tomorrow, as Mackenzie points out. They'll just be sent on a different movement at dawn and, and the same and disaster will before them anyway. And there's a sense that like everything that he's done, he's ended up in an existential sense close to right back where he started, which again, is a very World War One sort of message where the motif, you know, the, the theme of World War One is this kind of war of attrition, this idea of, you know, a war that's fought over a land that you turn into. You pointed out these graveyards and these ruins. And, yeah. You know, the moment, the conversation that they have in the truck where they're wondering about the Germans and they're like, you know, well, what what's what's worth fighting over here after everything that's been done? 
Yeah, and it's it it led to um it made me think as well of um the I think the mayor of um of Eat um in Belgium, I think, uh helped to set up the the charity Mayors for Peace that a friend once worked for. Because it, it, it um just thinking about um yeah how 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 it just becomes this sort of hellscape yeah these these um these places that 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 they just become that they just become entirely destroyed but the the i always have this idea of world war one of it being these kind of like two lines that don't really move very much and 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 the um the kind of the 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 blackadder um, well, the ending uh, of Blackadder goes forth. Well, no, no. Did the 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 joke what is like um, what's his name, Melchley or the um, oh Melchant? Uh, uh, yeah, Stephen Fry's character, yes, the where they're, they're showing him the um, the land that was gained that day, <laughs> and and he asks, uh, uh, "What scale is this?" And it's like, no, this actual scale. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. up on the table, but um, yeah, but there's a lot of movement in this. Is is does that just make it easier to make a a, a movie? Because you can't have a movie where people are just kind of staying in one place. Unless it's Jarhead. These are <laughs> probably more Sam realistic movie. Yeah. War, movies. war movies. Yeah, where where people don't do much. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's the thing is that, and again, this is Nate Nate Jones from Vulture made the argument, and so I I can see it to a certain extent. The big dramatic moment of 1917 whether it works for you or not the big dramatic moment and the one that does feature at the climax of the narrative trailer uh, is the sequence where Schofield played by George McKenzie and I actually think this is a very effective piece of cinema I don't think it's as moving as the movie thinks it is but I think in terms of technical accomplishment I'm awed by it it's a sequence where Schofield is on the front line as, and again the music's building and you've got all the chaos happening around and the men are about to go over and you have the big moment where he's like I need to get to Colonel McKenzie and the captain says well you'll never make it you have to wait until the line Sir, goes out I've orders to stop this yeah. attack where yeah. is Colonel McKenzie? Yeah, and sir, you... I've ordered to stop this attack. Where is Colonel McKenzie? And it, yeah, press A to repeat command. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment as well. The video yeah, game it's... kind of cutscene logic of the movie. Um, but like the moment where he has to cross out onto the actual front line and run across. Uh, Jones has made the argument, and I wonder if there's something to it that, like, as a World War One movie, it is quite clever that its big action set piece isn't about moving you know, from left to right in kind of like marching from one front to another. It's big climatic moment is a character flipping that 90 degrees and running down a straight line, basically, uh, which is a very World War One sort of metaphor, an example of what you were talking about there, which is the idea that the line doesn't actually move that far. It's notable that the film is actually based around a real German operation, Operation Albert. Well, Albert. yeah, it was, um, it was Sam, Sam Mendes' grandfather, wasn't it? Yes, it was inspired. I told him uh, about it. Yes, it was inspired by um, the gentleman. Albert. Albert. Uh, Alfred H. Mendes. Alfred. Um, who lived from 18... He actually published a book, the autobiography of Alfred H. Mendes, uh 1897 through to 1991 and he would tell um mendez uh he would tell mendez sam mendez and his these stories about his time in the war and many of these stories kind of came through so for example there's a story about rescuing a wounded soldier and carrying him back over the line only to realize that he was dead because the wounded soldier had actually taken a bullet 
that was meant from a sniper for him, for example. Um, he talked about, you know, volunteering for uh, a mission on October 12th after nearly a third of his men had died in the Battle of uh, Polkapel. The survivors were stranded across many miles, and Alfred, who had been trained as a signaler, signaler was sent to lead all those men back to camp. And that's what kind of inspired it. Um, according to Sam Mendes, that tiny man in the midst of that vast expanse of death, that was the one image I could never get out of my mind. And that's what inspired uh, the film in question. So it is drawn from those stories that were told by his grandfather, um, which is kind of, it is it is touching and it is kind of, and again, he's talked about how it wasn't, he's never felt like it was his purpose to make the film or anything like that. He's never felt like the one film that he always wanted to make was this particular film or anything, or that like he always wanted to lionize his grandfather's stories in film. He's talked about how, you know, he would tell these stories to people and they would tell him that he should make a movie like that. Or like if you're ever looking for a project, if you're casting round after finishing what you were working on last time. So he finished Spectre and he was casting round for something and his, his Bad, producer partner. What? Spectre. Okay. Well, Spectre. Uh, like, like uh, yeah. It, I, yeah it, I, uh, in, in, but I suppose he like, yeah, did this. I, I did quite like Skyfall. I really like Skyfall. And I think Spectre's first hour has a lot going for it and its final 90 minutes are not great. Uh, would be my my assessment of that if I were feeling charitable. Um, movies are crazy. <laughs> like final ninety minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Modern movies are quite something. It's like this podcast. Yeah, uh, the final ninety minutes of this podcast are going to be really something. Um, but here's here's the thing, actually, in terms of because we t- we did mention its technical craft, and a lot of the criticism of nineteen seventeen has been, oh well, it's a one trick pony. It's it's like the re- the film is just one take. It does and seem a bit like that. I'm wondering, kind of, what's the argument to the contrary? Well, here, let me. I'm see. I I promised I would come out and I'd, I'd be like, hey, I actually quite like 1917. Yeah, you told me like to say, yeah. yeah. What's the argument to the contrary? Yeah, that's, the argument. That's what we discussed yeah, I, beforehand. I, this is um, <laughs> don't ad lib. Yeah, don't <laughs> 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 quit, quit, quit ad libbing. Um, but yeah. So what I would say is that, like, again, one of the things that I really like about it, I think that the the gimmick in inverted commas of that extended single take, which isn't really, according to Deacons, the longest single take in the film is about eight and a half minutes. It was shot over a distance of 800 miles. Uh, and they had several problems with actors where like Stephen, uh, sorry, um, where Colin Firth would only be available for a day or they had Mark Strong for two days. Or they had Benedict Cumberbatch for a day and had to work around shooting for that. Deacons has talked about the difficulty in Were terms they... of lining up light and stuff like that. They and... meant to feature more? <laughs> uh, no, no, but in terms of just arranging with light and stuff like that and getting everything to line up perfectly for the trans- transitions of shots and stuff. But here, with for, regards... Sorry, for for Colin, Colin Firth... Who is in a bunker. Yeah, there there is... There's one scene with Colin Firth, yeah, in a bunker. There's one scene with Benedict Cumberbatch also in a bunker, and 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 there's one scene with with Mark Strong not in a bunker. But I was wondering, is the is the entire movie meant to be as overcast as it is? Yeah, yeah. They they made the this this decision kind of to to um. So what, were they waiting just for it to that, get very that's overcast? A, they would talk about that. They'd be like, they'd end up in situations where they would be like one day behind shooting and then would end up two days ahead and end up having to wait three more days for the right overcast sort of light to arrive, light overcast sort of clouds to arrive in order to perfectly sync up the shots. They had to wait for all the clouds to arrive. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> to be nothing but clouds. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, Amanda, sorry, Deacons has talked about in how he had, like, he had five different weather apps on his phone 
basically, in order to try and get a sense of how much they'd be able to shoot today and how awkward it would be when he would have to tell Mendez, actually, I don't think we're going to be able to shoot anything today. Movies Uh, are silly, aren't they? (laughs) But anyway, I promised I was going to make an argument for 1917. Here it is. Here's the big one. I think what 1917 really has going for it, um, outside of the level of technical craft, is the way in which it weds that technical craft to what I would argue is its core theme. I don't think that theme is particularly innovative or novel or insightful in terms of war, but the film argues basically that war is insanity. War is the compression of time and space. It is a sense of disorientation and loss. It is something that exists almost beyond the human capacity for comprehension. Um, and that's, I think... Yeah, that's right. Like, well, you, like you mentioned why people the suffer so much from uh, post-traumatic stress. Yeah, because like even, even on this island, the the uh, uh, percentage of the uh, population in 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 Northern Ireland who are suffering from post traumatic stress um, and psychiatric um, uh, illness related to that conflict is staggering. Yeah, and I think that what the one it's not something that we're able to handle. Yeah. Um, and it and, shouldn't happen. No, it absolutely shouldn't happen. I think. No, I mean, I mean, and I know that's not for, like terribly profound, but yeah, and and I, I would agree with that. And I think that, like, to give the film some credit, what I think the one take accomplishes that it wouldn't accomplish if you were doing cutting or editing or slicing, is that Tom Brahan's talked about this, and I think David Bordwell's talked about this. What editing and cutting tends to do in terms of film construction is it tells your audience that you want to focus on something, conveys a piece of information to the audience. And the most obvious example of that is to think of an insert shot, uh, which is a shot of something just to show you that somebody has a coin in their hand, for example, where you can tell the person that shot is tell them tell you that they have a coin in their hand. Yeah, in his hand. Um, or even like reaction shots, which are like, Andrew's thinking this now. Andrew doesn't agree with what Darren's saying. That's the piece of information that you're conveying with that reaction shot. And what tends to happen is the audience, particularly because we are accustomed to processing information in movies in a particular way, and that cinematic language, even if we don't necessarily break it down or think about it logically, that's how we tend to think about kind of like movies conveying information. And Brahan's argument is, and I think there's a lot to this, that what a long take does, and in particular a long take that is designed to run the course of the movie He's talking about Birdman, uh, but I think it applies equally here as well, is that as it unfolds, it gradually kind of challenges the audience's ability to fully process or make sense of what is unfolding. It becomes very much a spectacle of chaos. It becomes a kind of a realm in which like reality kind of breaks down because you're you're wondering what is the purpose of of this particular shot because you don't have the structuring of information that you normally have. Strange argument because... The um, editing that happens in in cinema is is, is not organic. Is, it's not what happens yeah, in the human it's brain. It's unreal. Well, I mean, that, and, yeah, that's that's the and, irony. And of it. and to 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 give us a um, a kind of a one take is more uh... <laughs> should in theory be more naturalistic because think about it. If you think of your eyes as a camera, your life yeah. is effect- or your eight hours of a day are a one take, for example, and then you have black out in the middle <laughs> Wish of it. I could choose what things I look at. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as opposed to like, it would be much easier if we could edit. And it wasn't just that I had to. <laughs> 
we were talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, <laughs> were we, Andrew? Um, but like Brian's argument is that even within that, like think about how you you blink, for example, you turn your head, you have control of your movement. You can control where you go. And, you know, you can't control everything that you see, but you can control where you look. You can focus your attention and stuff like that. And you can generally, you can control the flow of information through your own eyes. Whereas with this one take in the cinema, the director is doing that for you and you don't really have a choice in the matter. And it's just kind of like a, a fire hose of information is generally how he describes it. And what I think makes 1917 particularly interesting in that regard is two things, and we're going to circle back to the time thing, because now we can talk about it with spoilers, right? Which is that throughout the film, the the narrative consciously plays with the idea of time and space and where the characters are. And I don't know if you picked it up on first watching. I kind of did, but I was like, is that really there? Is that what's happening? But on rewatches, I've become kind of more aware of it, more attuned to it. You'll have sequences where the camera will move around characters and show you a space, uh, and it's particularly noticeable, for example, before they go through the cherry blossoms. I noticed where that. I noticed it with the with the with the farm, and where with the farm the appears out of nowhere. Waterfall. Yeah. He fall. He falls down a waterfall, a huge waterfall, and then it just appears to no longer be there. Yeah. Anymore. And it it happens throughout. Like there's there's, there's a, there there is, I did actually notice that that happened. Yeah. Um, and it happens fair quite a movie. bit as well. And again, the, the camera moves around, like the the sequence where they're talking about the medal. And it's like it's it's not just a piece of tin and it has a bit of ribbon on it. The camera whirls around to where it was a moment ago and all of a sudden there's a farmyard there, an entire farmyard and cherry blossom field. And there's this sense of like, even if you don't notice stuff like that, it's the idea that as the characters are walking, the landscape and the extent to which the landscape changes around them. Think about when they come out from the German lines, when they come out from like the cave in and they come out into this horribly scarred landscape with these artillery shells. And then they and, wander yeah, up into the up into the trees and then into a beautiful field that looks practically untouched. It's weird because and like at the end of the movie, they have this this and I always wondered this about uh, World War One, where they have these trenches that are dug in. And then you kind of like seem to walk in a sort of a straight line. You're not going down a hill or anything. And then you come out and there's kind of fields and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, well, if they could see us there, can't they see us now? Yeah, just logically, we're just yeah. further back. But yeah. It's like, no, our bullets don't go that far. <laughs> um, gravity's rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, but that, that's the kind of thing. And the film kind of plays with that as well. So it does play with space in that sense as well. And also plays with time. Um, and I mean, I, I know maybe you didn't really kind of notice it as well. But things like, for example how long he happens to be in the truck for example there's no way that that journey was as short as it was when the characters are having the conversation in the back of the truck um or later on when he's kind of like you know he he wakes up in the middle of the night and it's the middle of the night but then he finds the woman and it's dawn again and then all of a sudden it's not yeah. dawn it's it's kind well, that, of late morning that makes me think that that it was kind of the just the difficulty of trying to do a uh, one take um uh, movie where 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 you're trying to give the idea of it happening in 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 real time i don't like know the, the but i mean even even the conversation with lieutenant leslie who haven't seen the film several times lieutenant leslie is probably my favorite of like the one shot celebrity cameos the character played by andrew scott um who does the uh who does the blessing of them with the whiskey he's introduced saying uh settle a bet what day is it 
And I love that when uh, when he says Tuesday, it's like, well, this idiot thought it was Saturday. That one of the officers shouts back, sorry, sir, uh, which is great. Really let the side down there. That's that's myself in a World War One movie. That is you, that yeah. Is very- How do you think you would do in a, oh, in a, in a war? Yeah. I'd, I'd be dead. I, I was sensing that. I'm, there is a kind of difference during... Um, uh, I was thinking about this during the movie. I was thinking kind of if you were to ask us, like, how do you think you would do in war? I'm the kind of person who, like, incorrectly says, um, yeah, I think I'd do pretty I good. Pretty, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. fairly but, sure I'd be, but, no, I'd be dead No, the reality is that yeah. I'd be dead quite early too. <laughs> but but I, I have, for some reason, I feel like saying, no, no, the the. the I feel I feel like um, psychopaths like me are kind of <laughs> perfectly what's needed. This. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, but I mean, I, and I do think that like that discussion with Leslie, kind you of take thing. over, you do all the jobs, Darren, <laughs> and then get shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like um, I'm I not, think... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going there uh, with that flamethrower. What if somebody shoots the flamethrower and blows up and I die? And Darren is like, no, that's fine, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. You're right. This that's unreasonable for me to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, but I do think that the distortion of time is a very like it is something the film is consciously doing because you have that conversation with Leslie where the point is that when you're in war, you don't have a sense of time or a sense of space. I think that even discussions over the map and and the reading of the map and the direction that they need to go, or even things like say the passage of Blake. And again, this is one of the things where I do think the films technically cold um in a literal sense and richard brody at the new yorkers made this argument as well the death of blake right which is a horrible cliche it's a a war and this is the thing when i talk about like 1917 being a much more cliche war movie than dunkirk than dunkirk because it's like two officers one of them is a hard-bitten cynic the other one is a romantic by the way he's also named blake in case you didn't get that and he's british and he's a romantic Gee, I wonder what we might be getting at there. But uh, Blake is a romantic and Schofield's a cynic. And it's like, which one of these two is going to make it to the end of the movie? I wonder. But the sequence where Blake is shot, like is stabbed, sorry, and Blake bleeds out. And this is one of the things that is kind of unsettling and disturbing. And I'm not sure whether it's in good taste. I'm not sure whether it should be in good taste. But the sequence where they use CGI to basically whiten, to drain the blood from the actor's face. Yeah, I was thinking, he's looking dead, like, really quickly. Yeah. And it does, I want, like, I, I suspect, like, that is another moment where I feel like the film is kind of, like, distorting time i think consciously and you have that then as well where it just so happens that the entire platoon of officers is pulled up while schofield has been sitting there watching him bleed out which doesn't make sense logically or rationally because you pan across and they're like relieving themselves on the side of the building and it's like all of a sudden it's you know practically a a village hall kind of meeting where everybody's running around and shouting and yelling and it's like there's no way that that happened as quickly as it did after after kind of the the stabbing happened, and I think the film is is consciously aware of that distortion, and I think that that distortion is part of its approach it to feel war. Weird, yeah, and I think it's meant to feel weird. And again, this is the thing where we get into the stuff that I'm, I am not entirely sure how I feel about the film doing, and that I think I see what it's doing, I think I see why it's doing it, and I'm not sure it's, and again, this feels very. judgmental where I'm like I'm not sure it's the right way to do it I'm not sure how comfortable I am with it doing it probably is the best way to do it where it 
And again, maybe it's appropriate because it's based on the stories that Sam Mendes was told by his grandfather. Notably, it's the first script that Mendes has written. Did you but, do, by the way, did you like the immediate exposition dump? Um, with the oh, you mean well this from is the, the trailer, the video game cutscene. Yeah, where it's like would walk down into the bunker, have the conversation. There'll be a presentation. There's actually a map scene, which somehow like and again, I I really like 1970, but it somehow infuriates me that your one take World War One movie manages to contain a cliche map sequence when Dunkirk was like, we don't need a cliche. You don't really map sequence. get the map at all. No, you don't. But it's it's there, and it's kind of like it's there because it's a war movie cliche. It's, it's like, like, are you good at point, maps? Point over here. Can will, point over there? Will you understand the map? With with uh, which is just kind of a um a, a kind of a yellow map with, <laughs> with mostly with, blood all over it by the time we're done with it yeah yeah it's a yellow map with different uh, colors of yellow and saffron running through it <laughs> what the, you that, see this no okay that's where you're going yes um the lighting down here is terrible but i mean it and again this is one of the criticisms of the film is that it it looks like, and again, part of me, I acknowledge this criticism, I see this criticism, where it looks like a video game. It's that one take effect where the camera kind of drifts around. And when the celebrity, when the actors you recognize show up, it's like segueing from like a freeform third person camera in a video game into a mandatory cutscene. Like when, you know, Colin Firth shows up and it's like, whether down to Gehenna or up to the throne. He travels faster. Stu travels alone. You expect to see and press That's X. That's why to... we went with just the two of us. Yeah. For this particular podcast. Where you decide to see like press X down the bottom of the screen to skip sort of thing. It's like uh, if you want to get yeah, straight. But don't press X twice. <laughs> you press X to skip the scene and you think it's not skipping. You press X again. It goes out of the scene and then you shoot. And all of a sudden you've shot accident. General Admiral. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the screen just goes red yeah um but again and one of the things that i do find interesting about it is that because what's I that s- by the way <laughs> that was like you know like did that never happen in video games where you've like where you shoot an ally and all of a sudden everybody starts trying to kill you I'm trying to remember where where I've done it. Probably Goldeneye. It probably wouldn't be Goldeneye though, because when if you kill a if you kill a friendly Goldeneye, the game's over. But there are situations. I remember there being games where friendly fire would basically turn your entire team against you, and you ah. basically end up with this sort of like situation where you would have to run around. Oh, it was Star Trek Voyager. It was Elite Force and Voyager, where if you shot the bridge that, staff, you generate is, red alert. That is a very a deep cut. Very deep cut. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I like that you said it like it would be immediately kind of obvious um, <laughs> to anybody who was listening. But one of the things that I do like about 1917, uh, well, sorry, one of the things that I find interesting about 1917 is because it's based on these stories, or I suspect because it's based on these stories that Sam Mendes heard from his grandfather, is the sense in which it feels almost kind of lyrical. It feels almost abstract. So you have, and again, you mentioned that sequence of the village that's been destroyed. And you have the kind of the Thomas Newman score and you have the flares overhead that give you these silhouettes over it. And it looks almost like something from a, from a nightmare. You have him drawn towards the center of the village where the church or the town hall is on fire and it's burning like hell fire, for example. And then he plunges in the river and again, it's the river sticks. You can tell because he ends up with a literal river of sticks. But like he ends up clambering oh, over 
clamoring over. Come on, what? Okay. No, really? Well, Mendez has said it's actually meant to metaphorically be the river sticks. But anyway, because uh, he ends up clamoring over the dead. But are you, and he's summoned you're, back you're, to the land of the living by cherry go- blossoms. You want to take back that actual river of sticks <laughs> I, thing with the S T I C K S. I was very, proud of, I was very proud of that one. I'm not going to take that one back. I don't think that's why it's the river sticks, to be clear. I just thought that was a nice little bit of wordplay. Was it though? Was it meant to be? Because if it was, then I hate this movie. <laughs> We've gone from I admire it technically to uh, <laughs> it's like a river of sticks, because huh? there uh? are sticks in it, um, uh? and it has that video game thing of your path is blocked by a fallen tree, um, or the moment where Schofield goes, "No, this way is definitely blocked. We have to go through the trench," uh, even though you don't see it as well. But it's it's more been a thing where they have to um, dismantle the booby trap, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, press X very carefully Um, and just in rhythm as well with the night with the sort of wire cutter. But no, more more to the point, though, it kind of it does feel rather kind of lyrical and kind of like abstract and kind of metaphorical where you have sequences where after Blake has talked to him about cherry blossoms, for example, and after they've walked through the cherry, you know, the fallen cherry blossom kind of orchard with like the again you know the ruins but obviously the destruction of nature the film is very preoccupied with fallen trees there's fallen trees on the road repeatedly there's fallen trees that kind of dam up the river for example there's all the tree stubs on the horizon as they go through the german trench there's the much tre- nicer german trenches yes than theirs uh, even the rats even are bigger. the rats are bigger yeah um, and apparently that was true that the the um that they would they would shell the uh, uh, German bunkers um, and the Germans would be able to kind of withstand shelling for for forever and ever because they're they're all a lot of them were kind wow. of made of concrete. That's kind of impressive. Yeah. Um, but I I do wonder like if that's a kind of a sense of if the film is kind of turning war into and again the argument is that it turns war into a theme park right i mean we have a friend alex um from when irish eyes are watching who went to the 4dx version of this film um right and again watching the film do you get the sense that there should be a 4dx version of this film not really but um if if this had been a heartbreaking kind of moving uh movie i'd feel worse about it being 40x because obviously the 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 subject of it is um is this tragedy but i don't think the movie um perhaps does it well enough like the 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 kind of things that you do in a movie to make a person um emotionally invest become hacky and are done in the most kind of um, cliche manner possible. Cliche. yeah like, you I mean, have the the peasant woman in well, in the village kind of caring for a baby men clutching photographs that's it exactly uh, you have like and yeah. here tell my mother i was brave and like i have i have a letter write to my mother it's, i've got a picture of my sweetheart you, back home as if he's about to say it's so cold yeah, it's, but i'm um and again like it really is it's every war movie cliche kind of crammed in there which is kind of what's disappointing about it um, but I do wonder if, and again, this is the thing where it's it's push and pull, where I kind of, I can see what the film's going for in a kind of archetypal, kind of abstract way. Like that sequence of Schofield going to the center of the village and looking uh, looking at the burning, tr- is, that not, is that sequence not beautiful? Like, and again, you know how they, and again, this is the, the, the 
talking about the technical qualities of it but the sequences where the flares are going up over the village yeah. and the shadows are falling and again it looks almost like something it, from that, expressionist it, cinema that but, was incredible but the yeah. sequence where he's kind of like and you have it's the Cirque de Lue poster on the wall and you have the shadows kind of like basically revealing him as they're going but even things like the, the burning church at the center of the village which is a like an evocative image there's or a moment it was, when a German soldier is has he run out of bullets which which one when he's running is it when he's there's a german soldier kind of slowly walking towards him oh uh, by the church yeah no the the german soldier does produce uh, does start shooting in a moment i think he just can't see what uniform he's wearing no but the the um Schofield, oh you mean does Schofield Schofield run out of bullet? oh yes Schofield has a gun and presumably he was given more than one clip <laughs> but he he's he's yeah he's just kind of looking at this like clearly german Soldier coming for him. Lumbering, he yeah. Is, he's neither shooting him nor hiding from him. Yeah, he's just sort of standing there processing. Yeah. And again, this this is the thing where it is all those cliche images. It's the moment where he finds that the woman and the baby, as you point out, hiding in the ruins to illustrate that there is a civilian cost to this war. Yeah. I mean, you've already had that arguably when he went through the house and found the little child's doll, which indicates that this was a place where somebody once lived, where a family once lived, and they don't live anymore. And you look out over the land and you see the dead cows and the scars there. That's the, yeah, that's in, 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 in uh, was it in The Wire where the, the um, season five is in the, um, is in the newspaper? Yes. And they is. have a person who, who's uh, put dolls in, in, oh, uh, yes. in like burnt buildings. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but I mean and he's told not to stop doing that that's <laughs> yes. really uh, uh, hacky and conventional and, and yeah the, um, but that but this movie does that no but that, that this movie doesn't just do that it it does that and then doubles down it assumes that you don't get the point of the doll in the building and so it's like actually what we're going to do is we're going to give you a woman and a baby there and I mean again Schofield by the way gives the baby unpasteurized unpasteurized milk which seems like a it's an important symbolic thing, but it's also like, is that really going to help the baby? Darren, really? Okay. I mean, come on. Fine. Fair. The, 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 it's, it's the, you're, 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 it's like, um, I, th- I, I, I think, I think, I think he 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 gets his hand caught in in barbed wire and dips it at, in a corpse. And at, at at that point, he should be going back to the first aid station. <laughs> I don't think that was a very good idea. He he should have had proper uh, medical uh, attention. Yeah, afterwards. yeah, yeah. He shouldn't have been he shouldn't have been going near a a barbed wire fence without the appropriate gloves. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's World War One or something. Like they're drinking unpasteurized milk, okay. but that hasn't it to a been baby. in a fridge. Okay, feeding it to a baby. I suppose yeah, you don't. I, have... He should have just gotten a carton of pasteurized milk. Fine, 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 fine. Or fine. bought some formula. <laughs> okay but anyway hold on i'll just pop out to the shop <laughs> yeah we <laughs> tried across the way here how his baby needs milk uh i have milk but uh <laughs> it's not pasteurized yeah um but yeah no okay more to the point though it, get, it gets at the kind of sense of clicheness of it all where it is all very much like the movie hammers you over the head with this and again war you're right war is hell and we, we we're so, still suffering the consequences of it and you could argue that we haven't actually learned it's anything good that war is so terrible for if it weren't, we should grow too fond of it. Ah. Um, 
Who's that, by the way? Who was it who said that? I feel like it might have been um, Ulysses S. Grant or or, um, General Sherman or somebody like that. But let's let's go to the fact machine. It is well that war is so terrible. Otherwise, we should grow too fond of it. We must forgive our enemies. It was Robert E. Lee, so you're actually quite close. Ah! Um, which was which was quite quite close and appropriate, but yeah, it it just again it's it's every cliche. The movie hits every cliche down to Blake being like, it's like oh Blake believes in medals. He probably also believes in Santa Claus. He's almost cartoonishly naive. Yeah, and Schofield is like if the cherry blossoms even he's like talking about the cherry blossoms and then you have like the cherry blossoms falling oh in the river at the end which reminds Schofield of his mission and again like it it feels like the movie's playing with more cynical ideas but it's singing kind of in the forest even well that again that's almost like something from a fairy tale where Schofield's kind of guided by the singing in the forest and again part of me wonders like I see what you're doing there you're lending it this kind of quality like the burning church which is like hellfire and the, the river which is like the river Styx but I mean at what point does that become vaguely tasteless? At what point does that become kind of like numbing to, you know, at what point do you reduce war to a set of cliches and kind of, you know, archetypes rather than covering what it really is? And again, I like the film. I like the film a lot. And I think that it's trying to do something worthwhile. I think it's trying to convey something worthwhile. But it also, the level of cliche involved kind of gives me a lot a lot of pause around it. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, the... um the plane crashing into a barn is probably something unique that they've done in the movie yeah. that that, but that even, doesn't get done. But even that leads to a sequence where, and again, it's it's something that's been done so many times. Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan, did it most obviously, where trying to save a German officer, trying to save an enemy soldier, gets a hopelessly romantic soldier killed in the end. You know, where you spare a German or spare an enemy and he ends up killing you. It just happens much quicker this time around. Yeah. And and again, like it, it just everything feels like it comes Isn't it terrible that in <laughs> in World War One movies and there aren't that many of them, but in this movie I'm like I'm that Nazi just <laughs> there's no Nazis in this movie. <laughs> You just think of them as Nazis. Um, I'm sorry. Is that bad? Is it true though? I don't. I don't know. Again, I tend to think of them more as faceless and anonymous rather than Nazis, because Nazis at least have a distinct identity. Here, they're just the enemy. Yeah, and I mean they're referred to as the Bosch, the Huns, the Huns and stuff throughout. Yeah. But they're very much they are kind of. And again, you know, within the context of doing a single take war movie, that's like a man on a mission movie. I can understand why you don't necessarily have the opportunity to give the enemy any personality. It's so but- strange, actually, World War One, how quickly it went from the French being the enemies of the British and Germany being an ally, its ally to um, to have been the French being the allies and the uh, Germans being the um, the enemy. The enemy. It's it, it, like it. I, I think was it was it Erskine Childers wrote um, a um, a kind of a, a novel um, about um, some kind of plot, um, like an espionage kind of um, novel between um, uh, Britain and uh, Germany, and it was considered like quite odd at the time. But it, but it kind of is. Um, 
presaged this um, um, kind of conflict or this new kind of uh, status quo. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like that's the situation with with World War One. And again, obviously, there's there's too much history there to go into. But it was basically it was a sequence of alliances and dominoes that kind of fell around. Because um, I mean, all the all the great houses of Europe are basically related. They're all related right. to marriage and kind of intersection and stuff. And it's almost strange it, to think in hindsight that, you know, what it is effectively a family squabble. Yeah. Li, li, and it ended up destroying have, a continent. Have you looked, uh, have, have have you watched any of those documentaries about kind of like George and Alexander and Wilhelm where I, I was watching them with uh, uh, friends of mine. I was thinking, like, stop being so mean to Wilhelm. Of <laughs> like, course, he's you're going to give him a complex. Yeah, but that's just kind of how it felt. Like they would be making fun of him, yeah. you know, to each other. Yeah. Um, and um, of course, that would lead to the chip on his shoulder. That would, yeah, lead to a lot of the problems that would lead to World War One. Sorry, this is inadvertently turned into a a broader historical kind of podcast. And it's like maybe if maybe if you just kind of hung out with him and stuff, he'd he'd stop like kind of. Uh, you know, um, uh, talking that way about things. I don't <laughs> and know. developing his armed forces. Um, just in terms of kind of uh, the the movie, just to give a sense of scale involved. They built five thousand two hundred feet of trenches for the movie. Yeah. Um, they shot it all around uh, Britain, uh, including near Stonehenge, which was apparently hugely controversial. There was uh, some local protests because they're worried about the damage that might be caused to local scenes. They had to bring people in to actually inspect the ground beforehand and make sure that when they were digging trenches that they wouldn't disturb any um, buried people, whether you know recently interred or kind of more historical uh, bodies, which is kind of why? interesting as well. <laughs> what do you mean, why? Like, why? Well, because it was near a historical site, so they were concerned that there well, would be Bronze Age if you're burials. Digging and stuff. a hole in the ground, there's a chance that somebody was there once. Yeah, but when you're when you're digging five thousand two hundred feet of trenches that are supposed to be how however many feet deep, uh, one imagines that you are. Is going... that not just the same thing that happens though if you're building a road? Like how how controversial is it to 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 build trenches? That's they're, very they're, they're, I I I, I, I would the... imagine that they're obliged to have some sort of an input from an archaeologist. Yeah. and and to be fair, it's it's also that roads are arguably more necessary. Like I mean, when you're saying I want to film a Sam Mendes war movie, it's just like why not take it down the road a little bit, for example. Um, it is worth noting that again, this this sort of they actually built the farm, for example, the farm was built from scratch. Uh, for the film, the, the sequence where the plane crashes into it. But they found that what would actually happen is they had to deal with local wildlife. Um, so when they built the farm, there were apparently birds. Um, they were swallows and wagtails um, had decided that they wanted to nest in the house and in the barn. Yeah. They couldn't actually demolish the barn and the farmhouse until the wagtails had raised their their chickens, their chicks and moved on uh, because they were preserved and endangered species. They couldn't disturb the environment that they created for them, which I kind of love about it. Um, despite the fact that you're making a movie that's nominally about this conflict that is about chaos and sort of, you know, war and horror, that you end up, like, actually building these spaces that become lived in uh, by, kind of, you know, wildlife. Um, and before we finish up, then, just very quickly, because the film hasn't garnered uh, much praise for its actors, uh, George McKay um, and Chapman um, have not received major awards recognition for their work. Uh, I actually, I think that it's, I don't think either of them is brilliant in a sense of we'll be looking at those actors in 10 years time going, well, look at the careers they're having. 
But I think that, you know, as part of the film's technical success, I think they do a lot of it. I think McKay had to obviously do all the stunts that are shown in frame, uh, which is quite impressive for an actor as well. And he's talked about, so the, throwing himself into trenches, throwing himself down, falling, um, like knocking himself over. That sequence where they're running, where he's running along parallel to the trench, for example, um, that sequence, he, those two extras that he knocked down were by accident. And apparently he had to find himself back on course and stuff. That's why apparently one of the yeah, explosions... It's a, a terrible idea to do that because people are running at 90 degrees with bayonets. Yeah, now presumably they're all plastic bayonets when you're filming, but still it's... Yeah. Oh, you mean in, in, the, in the world of the film it's a terrible yeah. idea? Yes, yes, it is a terrible idea. Um, but again, and, and you know, Mendes has talked about stuff like McKay having to learn, technically speaking, what he was, what he was doing. A lot of technical crafts, so stuff like unhooking. When he was in the water and climbing out of the water, for example, he was being dragged through the water. He would have to unhook himself from the apparatus and lift himself out because you couldn't disguise that by a cut, for example. And kind of other other te- other moments like that as well, which are kind of like, I think, you know, deserve some measure of kind of recognition in terms of... Because we don't... We, when we talk about performances, we tend to think of things in terms of like Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, he had no choice but to do those things. He did have no choice, but it, it still takes a lot of work, I imagine. It still takes a lot of effort. I mean, it's, it's a more mechanical style of performance. And again, this is kind of something where we're praising the craft, even yes. in the... Yeah. Even when it comes to performances and stuff like that as well. That's probably, uh, probably fair, um, to be honest. Okay. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about with 1917? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at you? No. Um, no, I, I think it doesn't do to, to dwell on. <laughs> May I tell you something that you probably already know? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I can kind of I can, I can see that. Again, I, I quite like the film, but I do think that, yeah, it's not a particularly nuanced or deep film. I don't think it's a film that people will be talking about in, in years to come or anything like that. That's why it kind of bums me out that this might win the, <laughs> the, the, the Best Picture Oscar. That's probably fair. I mean, I would argue that, like, you can probably make a stronger argument for almost any other film on, on the list, to be fair, apart from maybe Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. And that I think that, like... You know, the Irishman winning would be a big deal because it's a Netflix film that's winning like, it. And I I kind of like you know, the Irishman the the the, the longer least. it's been since oh. I've uh, <laughs> seen it. But um, I, I, I I Little I, Women I, would be great to see win for obviously because it's yeah. a great film and also because it, it is would, a great film and obviously because it's a great Gerwig film as well. I mean, it would be great to see something like Marriage Story win because that's a two hander. Great to see something like I even once upon a time in Hollywood, although I know that's probably a controversial choice because it's just a, a warm kind of comfort blanket of a movie be great to see parasite win um <laughs> not entirely <laughs> um but like great to see parasite win because it would be a south korean film arguably i'd even like even though i'm not a huge fan of joker it'd be great to see joker win because it would be nice to see a popular movie actually have that level of intersection it'd be nice to see the oscars kind of award a movie that people have seen and people it's really not love. really a batman movie <laughs> <laughs> that's fair i suppose um that's it that's its primary appeal we we're living in a world where the where the character of the joker may have won two oscars in the space of 11 years which is quite something to say um but i can't Jack think nicholson's joker was incredible i mean um, mark hamill's as mark well hamill's, was also very yeah. great i mean like again cesar romero <laughs> oh there's a hot take for you Cesar Romero's Joker, who seemed like he just really, really wanted to get along with everybody. Do you remember the the um, uh, was it Vincent Price played yes, like the Eggman? Egg Eggman, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> he had some excellent puns. Um, oh, you would... loved him, didn't you? Oh yeah, he was a mad yoke, so he was. 
Um, <laughs> All right then. I don't think we're gonna top that one. So that's... no, no. We did, like we we we've, we've we we yeah we we've set a we've set a very high bar. The this the if we were if we were to try again, it would it would be difficult. It would be like Our... that that second albumen. Our bra- oh, I like it. Our brains are just a little bit scrambled right now. Anyway, uh, so with that in mind... Then, I really I- had to work for that one. <laughs> that was a long way to walk for very little water. <laughs> Which is perhaps entirely appropriate for the film that we've discussed this yeah. evening. Um, but anyway, so About before- shell shock. <laughs> before- I like it. I like that one. Um, but before we, uh, we finish up then... Andrew, do you have something that you would like to recommend to this day? Something that you're enjoying recently? Something yeah. Something you think it's um, worth their time? We mentioned earlier on um, the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> we were talking about it being number one. The best movie of all on time. IMDb. Dream Gun Film Reads have just released a, um, well, um, at, the, at the time of recording. Which is very just, close to the just, time of release. Which is very fair. close to the time of release. They had just um, uh, released a um, Shawshank Redemption, which is hilarious, and I'd recommend you listen to it, Darren. It's um, it's very funny. In fact, it, 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 we never listen to podcasts together. <laughs> Listening to podcasts, I find, is not something that you do with another person. No, it's person. not a communal experience. I think. No, uh, but yeah, um... yeah. Like I'd heard people who who play who play it kind of even it, like I never listened to a podcast where anyone could hear it because it's always in my ears yes yeah. i know people who um who do listen to them on speaker systems and stuff some like that pe- yeah some people have listened to this on speaker systems and we know that because it had this <laughs> weird thing where you couldn't hear <laughs> the start of this <laughs> podcast on a speaker system yes which is why we also now include thomas newman's score uh when we play our intro music as well um in terms of recommendations for me to keep it relatively uh, brief, uh, and also because I know that Tara recommended it last week, and I suspect people are going to recommend it in the weeks to come, Uncut Gems is now available on Netflix, and it is, while not a single-take film, is the most anxious experience that I have had in cinema in a long, long time. It is claustrophobic, it is anxious, it is paranoid, it is the sense of a world closing in on you. Um, and it's a phenomenal experience. It is a two-hour-long panic attack, and I adored it. And so if you liked 1917, maybe 1917 might be a, a little bit kind of... Sorry, maybe... I mean, Uncle yeah, I feel be. like this movie, the, with, in 1917, with its subject, deserves to to To, to have be a little that, tenser yeah, than yeah. it is, perhaps, and a little more anxiety-generating uh, sort of, uh, anxiety uh, than yeah. it is. And again, in terms of, say... Um, other like one take you could learn one... from the Safdie brothers yes um, I would love to see their World War One film um, but in terms of kind of films uh, so in terms of like the one take thing because obviously we talked about 1917 large part of it is the idea of a single take uh, one of the interesting things or trends in modern cinema is the emphasis on the single take and the idea that the irony I mean that... when it's done well it's incredible like, oh, like, like I hate this sort of like oh um Look at the look at the craft of that, yeah. um, because it's kind of showy. Yeah, you know when people try to do the um, the sort of like the Scorsese kind of like one take through 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 Goodfellas, but but things like um, True Detective. Yes, that, that eight was, minute which that was is incredible. Insane. Yeah, or even even things like and I mean I had to point out to you that it was a single take. Um, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. With the conversation between Bruce Lee and Brad Pitt's character, uh, Cliff Booth. 
yeah. where that's a one take that doesn't actually feel like a one take, but it's quite impressive when you actually think about it. But it doesn't draw attention to itself, which is, is remarkable. No. Um, and again, this is the thing where the irony of the situation is that historically films have had to have been limited in how long their takes could be because of the length of film reels. Um, you could only record eight minutes of footage on a film reel. So historically, you could only do a single take that was eight minutes long. That's why when Hitchcock did Rope, he had to constantly disguise cuts at around the eight-minute mark by fading in or closing in on an object and then pulling out from it because physically the reel was only eight minutes long. The irony is that now that we've entered the age of digital where the footage is easier to manipulate, you start seeing more directors approximating. There's parts of Rope as well, the the, the, the film that was released where you see people kind of... Um, coming in and changing reels and um, <laughs> moving things around. Um, but I mean, the, the irony is that even in digital, even in digital where you now have the capacity to record for as long as you want in a single take because it's digital space rather than a physical reel, the irony is that it's, it's in the cloud. That, well, yeah, it, it, it's virtual, man. Uh, but that, that's, that, that's quantum, the, baby. That's, that's the point that I'm going to make, actually, is that like it becomes unreal. Um, it becomes harder to know that it's real or authentic because, you know, it's, it's digital. It's easier to manipulate the footage. Postcats. Um, yeah, that's it. Exactly. What is reality even? And the fact that you're watching movies like 1917 or you're watching movies like Birdman and the whole point of the gimmick is to emphasize how fake it is. Like the fakeness of it, the how did they do it, the trickery. As you point out, yeah, the the drawing of attention to the fact that this can't possibly be real, that there's no way to physically have accomplished what the camera seems to be doing. Even Fincher's work when he moves the camera through objects, which is something I like as well. But what I would recommend then is I would recommend several examples of one takes that have been done remarkably well. So the first one I'd recommend is the TV show The X-Files in the 90s did an episode called Triangle. And what was genius about it was that Carter realized that you could only film eight minutes of footage in a single take. And he realized that this wasn't a good format for making a one-take film for obvious reasons because films are longer than eight minutes. But he realized it was actually perfect for television because your act in television between the commercial breaks that you have to provide is generally eight minutes long. And so it was timed perfectly. So Triangle is an episode of The X-Files where each of the acts is a single take. It is a remarkable accomplishment. It's The Wizard of Oz meets Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Rope. uh, And I would wholeheartedly recommend that. And then also Mr. Robot, which is a show that I've been enjoying as well. It typically does a gimmick-centric episode each season. So it did a crossover with ALF, of all people, in its second season. And in its fourth season, it did an episode that was entirely or mostly dialogue-free. In its third season, it did an episode that was framed as a single take, but in a way that was designed to emphasize it could not possibly have been a single take. And I would recommend that as well. I think that's very worth seeking out. So those would be my recommendations in terms of coming off the back of 1917. Cool. All right, then. So um, if you're looking for a bit more 250 in your life, you can follow us online. We are at the 250 on um, Twitter. You can also find us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are available. Um, We will be back next week. Uh, We're hoping to do something a little bit special. It's Valentine's Day. It's time for our annual Two Guys Die Alone episode, which ironically will feature three guys, uh, two of which will probably not be dying alone, uh, where we'll be talking about Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. Um, which is the sequel to Before Sunset, which we talked about last week, or did we? Is it the other way around? Um, are you are you, are you saying you're probably going to die alone? That's probably what I'm getting at there, um, ladies. 
He's single. Uh, and optimistic as well. Single, ready to mingle, and optimistic. Um, but yes, we'll be talking. Girls, jump in on this. You you could treat this man terribly. <laughs> and he would still accept it. Uh, but yes, it is Before Sunset uh, is the film that we'll be covering. Richard Linklater's sequel to Before Sunrise. Um, and we'll be covering that with the wonderful Jay Coyle. And with a bit of luck, we'll be doing our annual... Um, off-format episode. Last year, we did an 18-hour podcast covering Twin Peaks The Return. This year, we're probably going to be doing something hopefully a bit more modest. So we hope you'll join us next week for that discussion. Take it easy. Bye! Bye!